How many of you would like to know more of God's love? Yeah? How many of you would like to feel it clearer and more plainly? All right. You should know by now not to raise your hand when I ask a basic question. It's a trap. <clears throat> we'll, get, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute. All right, we'll get to, well, I'll answer that in just a minute. But uh, we're going to have a baptism after service. And I get asked often, very often, uh, about child baptisms because some denominations and churches have rules about ages. And so parents want to know, do you have an age? And, I, and no, I don't. I don't think there's some magic birthday where you couldn't be saved and then all of a sudden you can. Years ago, I heard a very wise pastor tell me what he did, and I've actually forgotten who it was that told me this, but the pastor said, I always, if a child wants to be baptized, I always ask them one question, and their answer determines whether they know what they're talking about or not. He says, he asks them, would God really send you to hell? And if their answer is, well, yeah, I I have sinned and, and I need to be saved, then they understand. But if they say, no, God loves me because I'm a good girl, then we need to wait a little bit because they don't understand what it is that salvation is. So we have always taught our kids how to behave, and we tell them they're great kids, and we tell them we love them all the time. But we have also always told them they are not good kids. They are on their way to hell. And they're in the same basket as mom and dad, and we all need Jesus. The fact that we love them, the fact that God loves them, the fact that they behave good will mean nothing on Judgment Day. Absolutely nothing. When they meet God, they will have to give an account for every action and every thought and every motivation and every moment of their lives, and it will not measure up to God's perfection. And holiness, and God will not judge them based on the fact that He loves them. Because a judge who favors anybody in His courtroom is corrupt and illegal. If the judge knows the defendant, he has to recuse himself from the case. It is a corrupt and illegal judge who would show favoritism because he or she loves the defendant. And so God on Judgment Day will not be judging us in love. He will be judging us against the objective standard of his perfect righteousness. And we will all fail. Every single one of us will fail. And we will be condemned to hell except for Jesus. I said except for Jesus. He is our only hope. It is only the blood of Jesus, the perfectly obedient one, that we can have any hope of forgiveness, and we can have completely solid hope in Jesus. There's no questions, there's no fear, we are saved in Jesus Christ. So a child who understands sin and guilt and punishment is ready to be saved and to be baptized, but a child who doesn't fully grasp that is not ready, and that's fine. It's totally fine. We'll just wait a while till they mature and learn, and, <clears throat> and then they'll be ready. So that's how I handle it, how I've, Josh and I have talked about how to handle the kids. And then there's the adults. We say that we understand that we are saved, that we are sinners, and that God 
loved us enough to send his son to die for our sins and that we need forgiven and that we haven't done it right. We say all those things, but then we spend way more time blaming other people for our problems than we do on our own face begging God for mercy. Is it even 10 to 1 that it's somebody else's fault? I'm right and they're wrong. The politicians or my spouse or my boss or my siblings or my parents or my children or is it even 10 to 1 that we would blame somebody else and be angry rather than own our own sin and ask for mercy? There's a quote on the screen here from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. In this book, Uncle Screwtape is an old, advanced demon who has specialized in derailing Christians. And he is teaching Wormwood, who's the new novice apprentice demon, on how to steer Christians wrong. So when they talk about the patient, that's you and me. That's us. Screwtape says, dear, my dear Wormwood, be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics. Arguments, political gossip, obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain toward the rest of the human race. Come on, I see your Facebook. In order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing, ensure that the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing there is a problem within himself. Keep up the good work, Uncle Screwtape. Now, we all want to be heroes or saviors or great rescuers or nurses or whatever, do something great in life when the truth is that it's us that needs saved. It is actually a lie from hell that Satan uses to derail our lives to go and change the world. God wants us to change ourselves. God never said go and change the world. He said you change you. Mother Teresa said something similar. She said if you want to change the world go home and love your family. Because the problem is not politicians or economists or fat cat bankers. It is me. God said that the land is under a curse because the fathers aren't loving their kids and the kids aren't loving their dads. The truth is the biggest problem with the world is not the Clintons or the Kardashians. It is my heart. I am the world's biggest problem. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if you don't see yourself as the biggest sinner in world history, you're about to hit a brick wall. And there's a name on that rock, and it says Jesus. I hit it this week when, again, I had to learn it is all my fault. Matthew 7 says this, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's awful quiet in this Baptist church this morning. (laughs) The truth is that when I am in conflict with anybody, whether it's parents or spouse or siblings or boss or pastor or whatever, it is always the log is in my eye and the sliver is in theirs. I'm not talking about blame. I'm talking about owning our guilt and responsibility. It is always all my fault. Romans 7.18 says, I know that nothing good lives in me. In my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. If your heart has any objection to that verse, you're about to hit a big rock. If you think, oh, but there is good in me, nothing good outside of Jesus Christ lives in you or me. My heart is the world's worst problem. In Luke 18, Jesus says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So already, some of you are like, but, oh, wait, I'm not self-righteous. I, don't, I admit I'm a sinner and I don't judge people and I've asked for forgiveness. Yeah, but in daily life, in situations, you can get into conflict where I am right and you are wrong. And I'm not budging. And every one of us becomes the Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The self-righteous person goes to God in confidence and feels qualified to talk to God. The humble man goes to God in desperation. Can't even look up because he realizes what a bad situation he is in. The Pharisee thanks God for how great his life situation is. You see it? I try to thank God every day. I really do. And I thank him for various things all through the day. So I'm not in any way saying we shouldn't pray thankful prayers. But this guy is thanking God for how great his life is. The other guy is in deep apology, brokenhearted remorse for his own sin. I have a Facebook friend who's a And I don't think she's a believer at all. She's a really nice girl. Very good kid. And she put on Facebook a week or so ago that how she thanks God every day for her life and her husband and her job. And on that first I thought, oh, that's great. I didn't know that she believed in God or was walking with the Lord. And uh, and she's not. I'm not her judge, but, but she's not. And... 
And the Lord pointed out, look, she's, she's just thanking God for what pleases her, for what is good about her life and her situation. There isn't any humility and repentance there. Jesus says the prayer that is heard is beating our breast and asking for mercy. So I've asked you before, and I ask you again this morning, how long has it been since you were so upset at yourself for your own sin that you have hit yourself? Jesus said that's the prayer that gets forgiveness. So I'm going to tell you how you can know more of God. If you want to feel more of God's love and know his presence like nobody else, admit how evil you are. I'm not saying this is the best way or one of many ways. It is the only way to truly know how much God loves us. It's when we are honest about how much he has forgiven. How merciful he has been. How good and kind he has been. And we can't know unless we are completely honest about how black our hearts are. If you want to be a giant of faith or a giant of love... Jesus said, this is the answer. In Luke 7, here's the story. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The Bible doesn't identify her, but church history tells us this was Mary Magdalene and that she had been a prostitute full of demons before Jesus met her and set her free and forgave her. So the Pharisee says, If Jesus was a prophet, he would know and he would not let this filthy woman touch him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. He said, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. That's about $100,000 versus $10,000. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he turned to him and said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom is forgiven, little is forgiven, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Mary comes in extreme, extraordinary thankfulness, in gushing appreciation. And she's judged for it. And Jesus says, this is saving faith that she knows how much she was forgiven for, how bad she used to be, and she knows how much I have forgiven, so she loves much. Do you see it? 
The way to know the love of God is to be honest about who we really are. Because when we're honest about who we really are, we'll know how much he has forgiven us. And Jesus said, that is great faith, and that is great love. Since we are sinning millions of times more than we're aware of anyway, and I use that word on purpose, it is millions, when we do realize it and repent, we discover that he loved us all along when we were unaware and unsorry. Do you see? The key to knowing God's love is to be honest about the blackness in our own souls. We will realize he's loved us all along, even when we weren't aware of it. When there's humility and honesty and confession, there's a deeper awareness of how merciful God is, how kind and gracious he is. There's a powerful appreciation. And Jesus says, it's not just a greater love from God or for God. It makes our relationships work a lot better too. It's really easy to forgive. It's easier to forgive when I know I need it more than Sarah does. I need it more than whoever else I'm upset with. If you have trouble forgiving, if you are a slow forgiver, this is the key. To realize the log is in your own eye. And the splinter is in the other person. It will generally always hurt when people point out our faults. But it will hurt a lot less if you've already acknowledged it yourself. Somebody comes along and says, hey, this is how you are. If you've already been humble and honest and confessed that sin, it might still sting, but it would be like, hey, yeah, okay, you're right, I know. I'm dealing with it, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. There'll be a lot less arguments. I won't be throwing accusation around if I realize I got the same problems and more of them. And we won't defend ourselves. If arguing is one of your marital hobbies, you can still do that, but let's argue instead of you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, how about I'm wrong, no, I'm wrong, no, I'm wrong, no, I'm wrong. Maybe I should try that one. <laughs> when we're fast to accuse or very quick to defend ourselves against correction, there's anger and excuses and division, and we break relationship and we harden our heart against the other person and God. Jesus says to us in 1 John 4.10, This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Do you see how plain and how obvious God has made it? This is the definition of love. Not that you try harder to love me, but that you just receive my love for you in that I died for your sins. So I say again, if you want to know more of that love, that greatest expression of that love is that he died for my sins. 
when I am more honest about my faults, about my bad habits, my pride, my hypocrisy, I will see more of his love that I was blind to yesterday because I didn't realize he loved me anyway. I'm not talking about self-hatred. I'm not talking about putting self down. I'm not talking about a faithlessness that doesn't receive forgiveness. You hear me? Some sort of general mopiness about a person that's like, oh, I'm such a terrible loser and I'm evil and I'm wicked and how could God ever love me? That isn't faith. And it isn't confession of sin. Every time the Bible says to confess our sins, it says confess your sins. Specific sins. Don't go around saying, oh, I'm such an evil, wicked person. How could God ever forgive me and love me? That isn't confessing sin. That isn't even humility. That's pride. It is, I am, my sin is more powerful than God. You're not that big. You've never done anything that he cannot forgive. You've never broken anything he can't fix. You've not gone anywhere that he wasn't already there. Hear me. Hear me. I'm not talking about beating yourself up in faithlessness and not actually ever getting around to repenting. I'm talking about just being honest to own who you are what your faults are. God doesn't even necessarily expect us to fix them. Just be honest. This is me, God. I need you desperately. And then he will take over. Of course we have to obey. Of course. We have to live out his grace in faith. But he really doesn't want us to try harder. That's a slap in his face. Just be honest. I'm not talking about being a martyr Well, somebody's got to be the mature Christian, so I guess it will be me. I will make peace. That's sick. I'm not talking about being, I'm not even talking about submission necessarily like, well, somebody's got to be a peacemaker, so I'll just eat this. Okay, that's dysfunction too. We have every right to confront in every relationship. We have a command from Jesus. It says if your brother sins against you, you go to them and you talk it out. But, keep having to learn the hard way that I need more mercy. I need more grace. You confess your sins, you will realize how much you are loved and forgiven. It's just pride or fear that's stopping us. Either I don't want to admit that I'm wrong or I'm afraid that if I do, I won't be loved. When I'm finally honest about myself, I realize how much garbage God and Sarah have been putting up with all along anyway, and that I realize how much I'm loved. Whether it's your husband or your parents or your wife or whatever it is, you're loved more than you know. Be honest about it. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. So again, I say, the more I am honest about how big my multitude is, the more I am aware of how big the covering of his love is. It is the only way to know the love of God, is to know how much I am forgiven. 
Revelation 1, 5 and 6 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He loved us and washed us from our sins. That is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loves us and he forgives us. He will forgive us of things we are not aware of. He will carry us in ways we're not aware of. He has mercy on things we don't know we need mercy for. But if you want to know his love, you can. Admit how much you need it. And how often. So let's do that. If you want to kneel right where you're at, It'd be great. If you want to come up here on the steps, it's great. If you want to just stay put, let's pray. Jesus, here we are, the people that you bought with your blood. And we confess that we need you. That we are in more desperate state than we know. Lord, we need your mercy. Thank you that it is new every morning. Thank you that your love never fails or quits. Thank you that you love us when we are sure we are right and you love us when we know that we're wrong and you love us when we're clueless. Lord, we confess that we have done all three. There is nothing we need more than your mercy. Teach us to own our own hearts. To not blame our problems or our dissatisfaction on anybody else. It's not our family's fault. It's not the politician's fault. It's not our boss. Lord, we own our own souls right now. And we confess that we need you to have mercy on us or we are hopeless thank you for loving us thank you for your grace thank you for your mercy thank you that there is nothing we have done that you will not forgive there's nowhere we've gone that you are not there with us there's nothing we've broken that you cannot fix there's no mess we've made that you cannot untangle there's no relationship that you cannot heal Forgive us for assigning blame elsewhere. For believing that we were the victim or the martyr when we were the guilty one. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for never giving up. Thank you for never leaving. Thank you for doing more than we can even begin to imagine how you have carried us. The things you have forgiven that we are still unaware of. But Lord, as much as we are aware, we come to you now. Thank you for receiving us with a great big smile. That you are happy when we just give in, admit we've done it wrong, and ask for your help. That's all you want. 
We give it to you, Lord. We give you our blame and our bitterness, anger and unforgiveness, our pride and our fear, our dysfunctions, our hypocrisy. We give it to you, Lord. We cry it out on your feet with Mary. Thank you for being so kind and gentle. Thank you for mending what we've broken. Lord, I thank you that you received our prayers in the past for salvation and forgiveness. And you receive them every day. And you will continue to receive us as we call on your name and beg for your mercy. You love us more than we know. And we want to know your love. So we humble ourselves. We give up accusation and anger and judgment. We say, Lord, have mercy on me. It's all my fault. Lord, in Jesus' name, we pledge to be peacemakers. We truly want to be gentle and kind like you. Thank you that you see our heart and you know our motivations. Equip us with your grace and teach us your ways. Give us your Holy Spirit to actually live out your commands. Kill our flesh. Smash our pride. Deliver us from fear. And make us your holy church. Your people that walk in humility and all of the grace and authority and power that accompanies that. We want to wear your glory and your purity and your truth. We want to carry your Holy Spirit in our very bodies. We want your word on our tongue and your power at our hand. So we choose humility. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving again. Thank you for your gentleness.